The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Romans in chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good works, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is also necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for your blessing as we look at this and seek to obey you. We seek to obey the scripture wherever it leads, not just because it happens to agree with our opinions. We ask that you would do this for the sake of Christ. Amen. Some of you may know, may have forgotten, but uh, years ago I published a little book on this passage that we just read. And it's about the, it's called Resistance to Tyrants, and it's about the Christian duty to oppose wicked rulers. Now, I published that roughly at the very beginning of the presidency of Barack Obama. And you know what happened? There were a lot of Christians who were afraid he was like the Antichrist or something like that, and especially white evangelicals. They were really upset, and, and, uh, and so... For a while, that book was pretty popular. I uh, heard from a Christian publisher that if you publish a Christian book that actually looks at the scripture and tries to figure out what it means, that kind of, even that much kind of serious content in a book, they said at the time to me that they consider it a successful publishing venture if a book like that sells a thousand copies. And I haven't been keeping super track of it. I, I, it's still on Amazon, and I still get little checks here and there, but I don't, I don't advertise. I don't do anything with it, and I don't keep track very closely. But I think as of now, I'm probably around 4,000 copies sold on this book that does have those kind of uh, theological contents. And so I'm not saying that's because I did something great, but I am saying that there was a lot of interest in that time about now that we've got this crazy man in an office who's, who's evil, now what's our responsibility toward the government? And should we resist? How do we resist? And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of interest. But I think what has happened is now a lot of those people who were interested in obeying the government now 
the guy they think is more their guy, now he's in office. And so nobody's as concerned anymore about uh, disobeying the government. In fact, when you point out that there are certain things that he wants to do that are clearly in violation of the law of God and the Constitution, now it's the very same group of people who were interested in buying my book that are saying, yes, but Romans 13, 1 through 7 says that we should obey the government. Now it's our guy in charge. There was a time, you know, honestly, I'm a conservative guy. I I'm, not, I'm not a liberal in anything. I'm not a liberal in anything except giving. Then I'm very, I'm extremely liberal. No, I'm just, <laughs> but uh, what was I just going to say? My joke knocked my train off the rails. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not a liberal in anything, but there have been times when I have thought it might be better for conservative people in the United States if a liberal was elected as president because then at least the party that claims to be conservative begins to act like maybe they really are. As soon as their guy's in charge, now suddenly they're the big government guys and they're doing all the very same things that we hated when it was this liberal whack nut doing the same things. And so I know that we have talked about this passage of scripture on a number of occasions, but this is something that I feel like we need to review and constantly have in our minds. It's important for us to have this down regardless of who's in the government. Re, I want to rehearse the arguments for why Romans 13 does not say that we're supposed to just submit to whatever the government does. The first argument, if you're taking notes and making an outline, the first heading is the analogy of Scripture. Analogy of Scripture. You might remember, that's a bigger, more technical word than I usually Use. You might remember it from your school days. What's an analogy is when you compare two things that are similar, right? Analogy of scripture is a fairly, is kind of a technical theological term for the belief we have that one author wrote everything in the whole scripture. And so what it says in Romans 13 is exactly like what it says back in the law of God, that there is no space on any issues, there's no space in between what it says over here and what it says over here. They are in total agreement. You've heard people say, well, you can get anything you want out of the scripture. You can twist it and make it say whatever you want it to say, right? You've heard, you've heard people argue that. What's the answer to that? Yeah, that's absolutely true you can do that. But that doesn't mean the scripture is twisted. It means the person interpreting it is twisted, you can twist it, sure. But we believe that one consistent, truth-telling God wrote the whole thing. So that what you find in one place must be in agreement with what you find in another place. And what that means is, if you've got your favorite passage of scripture over here and you think it tells you something that you like, the fact that that what do you think it tells you is contradicted somewhere else in the scripture means that your interpretation is wrong even if you really like your interpretation. You don't get to keep your interpretation when you find it contradicted somewhere else in the scripture. The whole thing agrees. 
So our Protestant forefathers, our, the first generation of Reformed Baptists, what they believed is, yeah, we're always going to have these, we're always going to have these arguments about who's right in their interpretation of Scripture. Now, some people then throw up their hands and say, well, it's useless then to argue about the Scripture because nobody ever gets convinced and there's no way of knowing who's right. So, and, and you'll have them be upset and, and not want to even discuss it anymore. But we believe the answer is there is a right answer. And sometimes all that arguing and that debating and butting heads, sometimes that's the process we have to go through in order to find that right answer. And the right answer is the one that the Holy Spirit put into the scripture. Who is the supreme judge? Who gets to say who's right in any theological argument? The answer is it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the scripture. Okay, so scripture is always our recourse. It's always what we go to. I have guys in the government that I cheer for them more than other guys. But the guys I cheer for, they can be wrong. And when they speak contrary to the scripture, they are wrong. And it doesn't mean that I'm being rebellious toward my guys for just saying, no, that's wrong. In under the analogy of Scripture, one of the arguments that we need to keep in mind is that throughout the Bible, resistance to tyrants is not only shown, but it's specifically approved. It finds the blessing of God in the Scripture. And I want to, we don't have time to turn to all these things, but I want to remind you of things that I bet you know. These are places where the Scripture itself comments on an action taken that could be interpreted as resistance to government. And the scripture comments favorably about these things. There are a whole bunch of examples where you see uh, righteous people in the scripture uh, opposing wicked government and no comment is made. So if we wanted to keep amassing evidence, that would be easy to do. But I want to focus on a handful of places where uh, where characters took action in resistance to wicked government, and then the scripture blesses that. The first instance is in Exodus chapter 1, and you'll remember the situation there where Pharaoh gave an order that all the male babies were supposed to be killed. And you'll remember what the midwives did, where they disobeyed the order, they didn't kill them, and then when they were asked about it, they frankly deceived the Pharaoh. In that place, Scripture says that God blessed them. As a consequence of their actions, God blessed the midwives and made them fruitful. That was an act of resistance to tyranny. We come forward to the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we won't turn there. Like I say, we don't have time to go to all these places. But uh, I'll give you the addresses here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, says that by faith... Moses was hidden by his parents. And it says specifically because they did not, did not fear the commandment of the king. So in violation of the king's command, Moses' parents hid him. And that winds up in the hall of fame, of faith. That was an act of faith. The resistance to the tyrant was an act of faith, not rebellion. Same chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 27. The whole exodus is shown as being in opposition to the wrath of Pharaoh. 
If you ever get a time machine, I hope you'll go back to the moment where Pharaoh was saddling up his horse or getting his chariot ready. Israel has already left, and Pharaoh is now going to ride out with his army and meet them at the Red Sea. If you ever get a time machine, go back there and ask Pharaoh in that moment, was Moses an obedient servant of Pharaoh, or was he resisting, was he a rebellious servant? Let's see what he says. I guarantee he's not going to say, yeah, Moses was in a Romans 13, 1 through 7 sort of subjection to me. He's not going to, he's not going to say that. He's saying, Moses was a pain in my neck. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verse 31, Rahab the harlot in the, in the city of Jericho. The king had set out and sent out an order to detain and capture the spies that the uh, Hebrews sent. Rahab hid them and sent the king's messengers out in another direction. She deceived the king's messengers. And not just this place, but also in the book of James, her actions in that moment are considered a work of faith. Not rebellion, not resistance, not violation of God's commandment, but faith. In Acts chapter 9, after Paul had been converted... There came a time when uh, they wanted to get him. He was inside a city and they were coming after him. Acts chapter 9. And it says the disciples lowered him down from the wall in a basket. Later, Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul references this story and, the, and he holds it up as a validation of his apostolic ministry. He puts it in the same place as things like being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ signs and wonders, all the, all the uh, traveling that he did. He amasses all this evidence. And one of the bits of evidence to show that he's a real apostle is that when the governor of the area, the ethnarch of that city, that's what he was called, when, when he wanted to arrest Paul, Paul and the Christian disciples there resisted his will and sent Paul down through a basket. That's an act of resistance to tyrants. And it's held up as a validation of his apostolic ministry. And the last one that I want to bring to your attention, sometimes what you'll hear is, well, yes, you see in the Old Testament, you see some resistance to tyrants and stuff, but Jesus never resisted wicked rulers. And you know what? That's true except for everything that's written in the Bible about Jesus. The, everything in the Gospels, for three years, Jesus repeatedly and openly and stubbornly and uh, with malice aforethought went in and publicly undermined the authority of the whole ruling class in Israel. Who were his opponents? The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers... The people look to them as rulers. The Gospel of John calls them rulers. And Jesus spent his entire earthly ministry up until the crucifixion publicly, repeatedly, stubbornly, embarrassingly undermining their authority and showing them to be fools and hypocrites. Condemning them in public. Lowering their status in the eyes of all the people. 
Why do you think they had him crucified? They weren't concerned about the glory of God and whether or not Jesus was being blasphemous by claiming to be the Son of God. They used that as a pretense. The reason they crucified Jesus is because he had just spent three years destroying their authority in the, in the sight of all the people. Well, where is that validated? It doesn't need to be. That was Jesus. Everything he did and said was right. So do you see how this works? We have the analogy of scripture. We have all these examples. And now we come to Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7. And now we have Christians saying to us, well, see what this says here is the government has a blank check to just kind of do whatever it wants to do. And you as Christians are just supposed to go along. No, that isn't what it says at all. Under the analogy of scripture, the second point I want to make is that in the Bible, all delegated authority is limited and conditional. According to the Bible, there is no human being anywhere that you are supposed to obey without question. Or that you are supposed to be obey in everything. Nobody. Slaves. We just saw a passage a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter tells slaves to subject themselves not only to masters who are good and righteous, but also to the wicked. Slaves are on the bottom rung of the society. You know, it's their job to put everybody else over. But Peter told the slave, when you are subjecting yourself to the wicked master, you know what, you're probably going to suffer. How could that be? If the slave is going in there and obeying everything the wicked master tells him to do, why would he suffer? But right in that passage, Peter says, you will be blessed when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. Because this is what Jesus did. He suffered for the sake of righteousness. So even in that passage where he tells slaves to subject themselves even to evil masters, it's assumed there's going to be a limit on that. And the limit will be the slave is going to have to take a stand at some point and say, no, I can't do that because my first master is God and you're telling me something he hasn't told me. And so then Peter anticipates you're going to suffer for the sake of your stand. And my point is then, If the slave, the bottom rung of the society, if the slave is anticipated that he's going to have to pay attention to what he's told, even from an evil master, he's going to have to pay attention to what he's told and use his own private right and duty of private judgment. He's going to have to judge every order that he's given to make sure he's not disobeying the law of God. Even the slave. So when some Christian comes to you and says Romans 13, 1 through 7 means you do whatever the government tells you to do, they're putting you lower than a first century slave. They're saying you have less of an ability to judge things for yourself than a first century slave whose life could be snuffed out like that if their master wanted to do it. Those who come to you and want to subject you in this passage, they're putting you way, way under And that's not how the Bible intended it to be. The second argument that I want to show you, and I apologize, I'm going to have you turn with me. We're in Romans 13. You can keep a marker there or your finger. But turn with me to Deuteronomy in chapter 17. 
In Deuteronomy 17, we're getting instructions that are specifically for kings and judges. And look at verse 19, Deuteronomy 17. It says, It shall be with him, that's the king, that he shall take and read of it, that's a copy of the law. He shall read of it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Right, did you get what it said there? He's supposed to, the instruction was, he, he makes himself a copy of the law of God. He's supposed to spend time studying it. And then in his rule over Israel, he's not allowed to deviate from what the law says. He's not allowed to be more harsh. He's not, about, he's not allowed to be more lenient. He's not allowed to come up with a new law just because he thinks it would be helpful. Well, but pastor, that's for kings under ancient Israel. We're under a new covenant. Well, yeah. But see, that... In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses anticipated that as Israel operated under this law, that all the kings of the earth would see them as a nation and see that their law is way better than anything they've ever encountered. They're supposed to recognize great wisdom in the law of God. So yes, it was given to the kings of Israel, but it was intended to affect everything, the whole world. This is the analogy of Scripture. God has not given the government the ability to just do whatever it wants. God has told the government, you must serve me. When you go out to establish righteousness, it can't be your own vision of what righteousness looks like. It's got to be what I tell you is righteous. My point in showing you that in Deuteronomy is that the government has a very narrow mission. The government is not supposed to be imaginative. The government is not supposed to come up with new great things. Get the heck out of the way is what the government is supposed to do. Enforce the laws God has told you to enforce and everything will be great within those boundaries. Government has a very narrow mission. And now when we come back to Romans chapter 13, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, rulers are not a cause for, of fear for good works or good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Romans 13 does not give the government a blank check. It says right here, the government is a minister whose job it is, is to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. That's it. The government doesn't have a job to make sure everybody's got health care. It's not the government's job to educate kids. It's not the government's job to provide housing. Nothing like that. The government's job is to punish evildoers. And reward those who do well. The third thing that I want to show you, look at verse 4 again. One of the reasons why you're not obligated to obey everything the government says. 
is because the government is called a servant of God and of you. Verse 4, the government is a minister of God to you for good. The government is a minister, that word is deacon in the Greek. The government is God's deacon serving God for you. This is a really radical statement. If the government is God's deacon, God's servant, then whose orders should government be enforcing? Well, that question answers itself, right? But here's the other thing. We talked a little bit before about the concept of oneness of being. Anybody remember that? It's a very basic concept of paganism. And it's this idea that all life is basically the same life. It's just in different circumstances with different levels of power and authority. So that the ancient Greeks and Romans, they had their pantheon of gods. But if you look at them, their gods are just sinners with superpowers. Basically, they can do whatever they want. They're more powerful, but they're really just kind of like us in a different place. Well, the pagan concept of oneness of being is that from the lowliest slave all the way up to the gods, everything is kind of the same. We're all beings made of the same stuff. And in a pagan version of oneness of being then, and I think this affects the whole world. I don't think we escape this. I don't think we can escape it. It's just the way humans think. In a pagan concept of oneness of being, the most powerful human that you have is by definition the one who is closest to being a god. And this is why pagan governments always become tyrannical because the king like Pharaoh or like Nebuchadnezzar, or like any number of other kings in the Old Testament in these pagan countries, the kings were the closest to God, and they became divinized. That is, the people began to see them as gods walking on the earth. Rome was the same way. I don't think we can escape that. And what I mean by that is there's a consequence then for believing that Jesus, the Son of God, appeared in human flesh and by his extreme acts of servitude and self-sacrifice, God has now raised him to the ultimate place of authority. For the Christian, really in all of reality, who is that top dog, so to speak? Who's at the top of the authority chain? It's Jesus Christ. If you remove him from the top of that chain, then there's somebody beneath him who is now the de facto top of the chain. Which is why every unbelieving government, every non-Christian government, winds up worshiping whoever's in their government. Well, we don't do that. In, yeah, we do. The word of the Supreme Court is considered to be the law of the land, even though the Constitution says the Supreme Court doesn't write law. But we all act like whatever the Supreme Court says, that's the law. And we even call it the Supreme Court. There's nobody higher. But I don't, think it's I don't think you can escape it. You're either going to have Jesus Christ at the top of your authority and thus be the highest man. Or you're going to put somebody else in that spot. And what the, what the scripture has just said here is that God made government a servant for you. In the pagan concept of the oneness of being, you and I are down here on the low end. 
and more powerful people are above us until you get to the most powerful guy who's the king or the pharaoh or supreme court or something like that. They're right at the top here. And in the pagan view, then, the guy at the top gets to make, he, by definition, he makes servants of everybody else. In the pagan view, if you're at the low end of the oneness of being, you serve everybody that's above you. And now you see what God has done here. He's just taken that pagan view and he's upended it. Right? He's destroyed that here. What he has said is the government, which the pagan wants to see as the top dog, the government has now been made a servant, first of God and of Jesus Christ, but also of you. It's amazing to me. Christians come to this text and they see Christians as the servants expected to obey the commands of the master, the government, when it says right here who the servant is. It's not us. It's the government. So to then say to, then say to the master, oh, you must obey every command issued by the servant. How much does that even make sense? What you will hear occasionally is somebody saying, but you see, when Paul wrote this passage, the worst tyrant in the history of the world was in charge. You know, Nero was the tyrant, and he was, he was horrific. He was the beast. You know, he, he's a bad guy. And even then, supposedly, even then Paul said, no, you need to just obey the tyrant. I want to show you that that can't even be possible. It's not even possibly true. There's nothing in the passage which, which uh, directly references any particular governor. It's talking about government as a concept. It's not talking about a particular government. But look what I want to show you in verse 3. It says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you Christians want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Now, history, you know, you can have your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And the fact of history is that Nero slaughtered Christians. What Paul just promised the Christians is, if you do what's good, you will be rewarded, not you will be mass slaughtered that's not what he said so i just want to show you here that paul is not talking about the particular government of nero he's talking about a government that is acting like what god intended government to do he's describing the government that you and i need to be in subjection to he's not describing nero the events in nero's day went opposite of what paul said if you believe this is talking about Nero, then you have to believe that Paul was a false prophet. Because he said, do what's right, serve God, and you won't have anything to fear. They did what's right, and they served God, and they were slaughtered in mass. See how that works? So if there's one thing that's clear, Nero is not in view in this passage. That, that doesn't work. You can't claim that. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.